Section 56 of the United States. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Cleana Woodburn, County Wexford, Ireland. The World's Story, Volume 12. The United States. Edited by Eva March Tapan. Section 56. The Death of King Philip. 1676 by Gideon H. Hollister. The wife and son of Philip were sold as slaves in the Bermudas. The story of their suicide, as here told, is apocryphal. The editor. Philip had returned early in the spring from his visit to the Mohawk and Canada Indians, having met with but faint success in soliciting aid from the tribes of the interior. Not discouraged at this disappointment, he had kept up the contest with astonishing vigour and activity as the smoking villages of Massachusetts and Rhode Island and the dead bodies of their inhabitants bore testimony appalling in the last degree to the English. No Aboriginal chief had ever gained during his whole life so many and such single victories over the superior discipline and numbers of the white population of the colonies as he had done. But his forces had been gradually diminished by the exertions of Mosley and Church, who had scarred the whole Indian country. His chiefs, in whom he reposed most confidence, had been, many of them, cut off, and, to crown all, his beautiful queen and the young prince had both recently fallen into the hands of his enemies. Many of the tribes who had allied themselves to his enterprise had deserted his falling fortunes and gone over to the English. Indeed, it could no longer be doubted what must be, ere long, the result of the struggle. But in the midst of all these calamities, whatever ideas he may have entertained of the fate of his plans, his deep-seated resolution never for a moment forsook him. He remained the same indomitable son of the woods as when he had first dug up the hatchet from beneath the shade where his father had buried it. No overtures of peace made him by the colonists received any favour from him. He spurned alike their pardons and their threats. He rejected all proposals on their part to enter into any engagement by treaty, and when asked to make peace and embrace the religion of his enemies, he instantly killed the Indian who had made the proposition. The English on all former occasions of war with any one of the tribes had either crushed them at once or been able to bring about a reconciliation by negotiation with their chief. But this systematic persecution of a war that had now lasted 14 months with unbated fury bespoke the existence of an enemy who united all the vindictiveness of the savage with the fruitful intellectual resources and unwavering strength of purpose of the European a mind which, under more favourable circumstances, might have ruled empires or commanded the mightiest armies. They saw that Philip was the soul and arm of the war, and that nothing short of his death could put an end to its wasting and widespread devastation. A result that many would at first gladly have avoided, what had now become an imperious necessity that absorbed all other considerations in the one first law of nature, self-preservation. Never was a charge so important committed to more skilful hands than those of the brave Captain Church. Abandoned by many of his subjects 
and bereft of others by the fortunes of war, Philip had retired to his hereditary seat, Poconocot, the place where the first flames of battle had been kindled and where the chief seems to have been resolved that its last sparks should be quenched. Early on the evening of the 11th of August, he repaired alone to the spring that sparkled beneath the poplar tree and drank for the last time of its waters. From that, he visited the grave above it, listened to the murmurs of the waves as they broke upon the beach in mournful dirges that seemed prophetic of the doom that treachery was preparing for him. The Indians are perhaps more watchful over the ashes of their dead than more civilised nations and guard them with a tender solicitude that seems so much at variance with the cold passive exterior of the warrior. When called upon either to witness or suffer the extremest tortures that the human frame can endure, that we should scarcely credit the existence of such a sentiment in them. Were not the fact so indisputably established by the testimony of the best writers. From the grave of his father, he went to the summit of Mount Hope and looked far over the wide expanse of wood and waters, searching out with his keen eye the far-off blaze of the distant watchfire that looked as it gleamed faintly from the foliage dim and indistinct as the light of the firefly that hovered over the winding margins of the bay. Having satisfied himself that there was nothing to fear from the appearance of the English, he retired to his lodge that had been erected in the swamp near Mount Hope and spent several hours in consultation with his faithful old counsellor, Anawan, before betaking himself to his rest. Meanwhile, an Indian named Alderman by the English, a brother of the warrior who had just before been killed by Philip, for advising him to make what he termed an inglorious peace with the enemy, deserted, sought out the camp of Captain Church, and discovered to him the hiding place of a Sekim. The encampment of Church was not more than five miles distant, so that he was aware of the near proximity of the enemy before midnight. He immediately set his army in motion and arrived at Poconocut at daybreak. Before he was discovered, he had placed a guard around the swamp where Philip was encamped, so that it was entirely surrounded, with the exception of a single outlet. He then directed Captain Golding, who served under him to scour the swamp and fall upon the encampment of Philip. Golding rushed into the swamp with a strong body of forces under his command, but the crackling of the bushes betrayed his approach, and Philip, who now saw that his only chance was in a precipitate flight, sprang from his wigwam and ran, nearly naked, with the hope of escaping through the line of English soldiers that lay in ambush around the borders of the swamp. Goldie and his men gave instant chase, but they might, with equal chance of success, have attempted to follow the track of a bird of passage through the air. The Sikhian, who knew every inch of ground over which he passed, fled over fallen trunks of trees and through dense alders until he was out of sight of his pursuers. He had already run nearly a hundred rods and could see the open plain just before him, when he perceived an Englishman and an Indian, each with a musket raised to his shoulder and brought to bear upon him. He darted aside just as the Englishman snapped his gun, which missed fire. 
The Indian was more successful, for before Philip could escape beyond the reach of his shot, the deadly contents of the rifle were lodged in his breast, and he fell lifeless on his face. The momentum imparted to his body by the speed with which he ran, almost burying it in the mud and water. The fatal shot was fired by the traitor alderman, who had spent the night in consummating his vindictive purpose. The alderman immediately ran and told Church that he had killed Philip. The captain commanded him to keep it a profound secret until, to use his own expression, they had driven the swamp clean. The Indians, finding that they were waylaid, faced suddenly about and stood on the defensive for a moment. But the news of the death of Philip was soon spread among their ranks and they broke and fled. It was all to no purpose that the old Sagamore Anawan shouted his accustomed war cry, Ayutash! Ayutash! The spirit of the warriors was broken by the dreadful intelligence, and the voice of his subaltern only seemed to augment their flight. When the battle was over, the English hurried to the place where the chief had fallen. Church ordered that the body should be taken out of the mud and placed upon the upland. When this was done, it was found, upon examining the body, that one of the two balls with which the rifle was charged had passed directly through his heart, and the other a little above it, so that either must have proved fatal. The war ended with the death of Philip. In accordance with the custom that dates from the times of the Hebrews, but which has happily fallen into disuse, the victors had now to dispose of their captives. This was done in part by distributing them among the conquerors and in part by sending them by shiploads to Spain and the West Indies. Hundreds of these freeborn men were thus transported to a climate which accustomed as they were to the winds and snows of the rough coast of New England, they could ill endure and to a servitude which corroded the spirit, as it enervated the strong limbs that had chased the deer and the otter over ice-covered lakes and broad sweeping rivers. Many died ere they reached the port of their destination, and none arrived at old age. There was no Indian summer, no sweet southwest with its spirit lake in the dead level of the ocean horizon which circumscribed the islands of the west. One bright September evening, a ship with all her canvas spread to catch the freshly springing breeze swept briskly through the waters that dash against the coast of Rhode Island. She was a Spanish slaver freighted with Indian captains. As she approached the wood-skirted shore of Poconucut, an Indian woman, beautiful but wild and haggard in her look, led a little boy to the rail of the ship and looked wistfully towards the shore. It was the queen of the Wampanoagas, the blue and violet wampum, the otter's fur. No longer adorned her slender neck, nor hung gracefully from her shoulders. The long black hair, no longer decorated with flowers, floated negligently in the chill breeze that swelled the sail and hurried the little billows against the shore that she loved. Though not a tear glistened in her eye, yet she looked the very embodiment of unutterable sorrow, 
as she gazed now at the coast and now in the face of the boy. He too was sadly changed. He looked thin and wasted, almost to a shadow. He had been robbed of the solitary feather that had been, from his birth till now, the mark of the royalty he was one day expected to put on, but the proud soul of Potocom still flashed from his eye. As the ship rode gaily on, the white flint rock that crowned the summit of Mount Hope rose huge and ghastly against the black clouds that lay beyond it. Where is the king of the Wampanoagas? asked the boy, fixing his eye upon the promontory. Let his queen and his son go to seek the chief. Look, the clouds do not settle on the southwest. The mother turned her eye in the direction indicated by his little hand, then grasped him firmly in her arms, and mounting the rail of the ship, just as a flash of lightning lit up the summit of the rock, plunged silently into the waters. The ship glided on, and long before the foam had ceased to whiten her wake, the Queen and the son of Philip, secure from the bondage to which their proud spirits could never submit, were sleeping side by side in the embraces of the ocean. End of section 56. This recording is in the public domain. Recording by Cleena Woodburn, County Wexford, Ireland.